Elvis. Hello, Jans. How are you? I'm fine. How's life? Very good, yeah. Well, like everywhere, uh, a little on edge that, uh, you know, everybody remains safe in these next few months. Um, but for myself, it's been a busy summer. Somehow I've managed to be busier this summer than I've been many years when I've been traveling around doing shows. So I can't complain. And I've had time yeah. with my family, which I wouldn't normally have so open-ended, you know. No, because you're always on the road. You're always making stuff. So, you know, all of a sudden you've got this time, haven't you? That was the case. As you know, we were on we were on tour in, in uh, Britain in February, March. Yeah. And we got almost to the end of that tour when it became obvious that, that things were unraveling fast. And the border to Canada was going to be close to me in a few days, so I had no choice but to cut that short which not only cut cut out the last three dates of the tour, but also cut a plan to go to Abbey Road and do some recording, which would have been a, a lot of fun. Uh, but I don't think anything to do with the record that you you have now. I think those songs were never intended to be part of Hey Clock Face. I, at that time, I wasn't even making this record. I was just doing some recording, and it was only when I got home and had a chance to listen to it all and put some other pieces together with the puzzle that... You know, I had the time to consider what would make this record stand out from other ones. But what a magnificent album. Hey, Clockface is amazing. I absolutely loved it. You know, and I played it uh, to death. And it opens with that amazing track, um, uh, Revolution, uh, number 39. And to me, it reminds me, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it's quite Shakespearean Macbeth when we're we three meet again in winter, summer, or in rain. It's got that dark thing, medieval thing that it's weird. Well, the prologue, that features pretty well. I, I, I guess I was paying more attention to my English literature classes at secondary modern school than perhaps <laughs> I imagined. <laughs> a little bit of education that I got, it must have gone in somewhere. No, but I think that's right. A prologue's not a bad thing to have in a story. Uh, it sets the scene. I have to give credit to my co-producer, Sebastian Kreese. He was the one that suggested opening the record with that song. I had originally imagined it would be the concluding thought of the record because of what the, the song ends on this statement, you know, love is the one thing we can save. And I thought, well, I'd like to leave people with that thought. But once we put it where it was, it, it did have the impact, like you say. It's sort of, it's not what you expect. Of course, you're going to get people that just go, what the hell is he doing? Why is he singing? We'll bring back the attractions, you know? I mean, I can't help you with that. Go and play your K-Tel punk rock hits, you know? I mean, uh, I'm not going to be doing that anymore. I'm doing the next thing I do is a, is a, some kind of rock and roll record. But you can't, you can't sort of do what you think people want you to do. You have to do what you feel you should do. It's like, I never think about, you know, I never think about what, how is this going to make me look doing this? I just do the thing. It's all happening too fast for it to be part of some master plan. You know, it's... it's. But you're saying it. then about, you know, you can have subliminal. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, how it can manifest itself? Well, I think that with this, it was just down to the sounds that those guys in Paris, you know, I, I, I played them the little figure that it opens on I played it to Steve on the piano. He played it to them. It says, everybody got those notes. It's not a lot of notes. 
just play that over and over again as many different ways as you can. So you're listening to five people improvising on a, on a short little figure. Well, you know, there's whole symphonies based on things like da-da-da-da, you know, so that goes on for 20 minutes. We, we were only trying to do two minutes, you know. So, um, and somewhere in the midst of it all, I, I just started speaking these lines, which were in my notebook, and that, the notebook happened to be open on that page. So the, that recording is of me writing that song, I suppose you might say. So I, I like the fact that it's completely spontaneous. Well, it's improvising. That's right. I mean, I can't, I wish I could play an instrument as well as my wife and I could sit down and, you know, tear into a chord sequence and turn it upside down. And But I never really learned to play an instrument in that way. I just learned to play the guitar and a little bit on the piano enough to get my songs over. I, I can't sort of improvise, I can't play like a jazz improviser. I can make a noise with the guitar, that's easy. But uh, and I, I like to do that, as you hear on No Flag. I, I like to make a noise with the guitar. It's not terribly musical, but it's but it it's the right thing for the right song. That's all you that's all you're trying to do. And lots of the music that you and I love is just the right music for the right song. And and that could be Luther Perkins playing on Johnny Cash's records, or it could be, you know, Bob Quine playing on Richard Hell's records, or it could mm. be, you know, it could be Steve Cropper playing in the MGs. That that not, you know, Bob Quine probably the most fluent of those three, but particularly some of those players that just play. The thing that's essential, like if you listen to I Walk the Line and listen to the solo by Luther, he's, you know, he's just playing simple notes anybody could have thought of, but you know what? He thought of them. And that's why, you know, we can still sing that solo. I was looking at a documentary about Blue Note the other night. And I mean, that's so impro. You know, all of those people that just suddenly, you know, Herbie Hancock and other amazing musicians and they just watch each other and they just go with the vibe, don't they? They're also very young. You know, Herbie was very young when he was on Blue Note and he had the whole time ahead working with Miles Davis and mm. Wayne Short, Tony Williams, who when, when, when he was sort of recruited by Miles, I think was only a teenager. So that's the other thing. They had no fear and they didn't have an orthodoxy about music. That's also true of a lot of rock and roll. The initial ideas are made by people who are fearless, young and fearless, and sometimes young, fearless and stupid. And the stupid part's not a bad thing if it's the right kind of stupid. It's mm. cynical stupidity you have to watch out for. Stupid to the point thing can be really good in rock and roll. Obviously, the musicians you mentioned on Blue Note, you've got people coming from out of R&B, and then you've got people like Horace Silver, Mm. You know, has bringing in rhythm from from the islands and that there's all sorts of people that have traveled through jazz that it's not all one journey like my wife is from vancouver island and her ambition was to go to new york to to be a piano player uh, another another woman really rosness who's uh, uh, all from her, her part of the world made the same journey oscar peterson is from uh his from Barbe his family is from Barbados, and he grew up in Montreal. So, mm. but, you know, there isn't any rule that you have to come from New Orleans or you have to come from London or you have to come from Chicago. Some of the, my favorite musicians come from the middle of nowhere and travel to where it's at to get where they were. And you know full well that when you were a kid, 
Liverpool seemed a lot further away from the rest of the world than it does now because we, at the click of a button we can see the you know you're, we're looking at each other right now over a system. I'm on Vancouver Island, you're in Liverpool, right? So back then, you, when my parents were kids and and trying to pick up the cues from American music, you had to wait for a record to arrive, and it might right might take six weeks for it to come into the shop. It was an instantaneous thing. So I would say those messages probably felt very precious. And I know that I, that I felt that way when I went to record shops, why, I, why I'm glad we're doing this, because in this particular moment, uh, while the, the big chains of record shops in England yeah. disappeared, the future of music is really held in the hands of the, of the, of the independent record shops. And not so much from somebody like myself, who ha has an audience who are aware of me, whether or not they like what I'm doing or not, that's up to them. But I'm all the time looking for the new record by the new group, the new singer. And I know you do that. And the place where you can browse, the places where you can walk in and flick through the records and look at them and go, it's, do I want this? And somebody behind the counter go, no, you don't want that one, you want that one. Mm. Well, that was the way it used to be in Probe in Liverpool and Probe still yeah, exists. Yeah. All those sort of shops, whether it's rough trade, you know, all I won't set one against the other, all super, you know, where I travel, I still go looking for, if there's a bookshop and there's a, there's a box of records outside it, I can't resist looking through them. There might be nothing in there but Sean Cassidy albums, but there'll be something. So what one. gems have you found over those times rooting through? I threw away all my clothes and and because they were terrible and and just brought a suitcase full of records first went to America because needless to say the second hand the second hand stores there had records by artists who I only knew one song on a compilation. Suddenly I could get a whole album and maybe there were like three or four of my favorite songs of the future were found that way. That that treasure of of older records they weren't that old there were some of them were only two or three years old right mm. you know and the ideas from those records filter into your own writing and it's interesting isn't it because you know you're you're saying that you do that and i did that i remember i'd never been abroad and i was a, a flight attendant as they call it now and i remember going to new york and what drew me you know a, as soon as I got at the hotel, it was going to record shops and buying records. You must have done the same. The very first night I was ever in the United States, I got into a taxi. We were staying in a Howard Johnson's motel in Mill Valley. Hojo's. Hojo's. And it seemed really <laughs> luxurious compared to, say, you know, the Thistle Hotel in Leeds. It, it was, it was yeah, TV. <laughs> TV in the room and it had you know it had a bathroom that wasn't down the hallway and all of that stuff and they had a shop that was open all the time so that seemed really like you couldn't get a sandwich late at night after a gig in in England <laughs> and um this sounds like the old days but it, it was very different that things closed down very early I'm sure some people watching will remember that and I got in a taxi and told them to Basically, it was like a movie. I said, take me to where it's at sort of thing. I didn't know where I was going <laughs> into San Francisco. And as I was driving into where I thought I might want to go, 
I saw a record shop open and it was 11.30 at night. Wow. And that's always stuck with me. They have record shops that stay open till midnight in America. This must be a great place. Of course, it wasn't like that everywhere, you know. And <laughs> then I went to, went to the club and there was music playing and it was easy pop which was pretty wild to walk into a club on your first night in America and see a show like that. I mean, it could have been, it could have been a terrible band that I didn't like, but that was my good fortune. But yes, over that first trip to America, particularly, I, I stuffed my suitcase full of cheap secondhand records that I looped various, various crawls uh, through the bin. They weren't all record shops. Some of them were just straight on secondhand sort of junk shops for really. That's all. Mm. Do you think that um, your background, because you musically, you go wherever you want to go. You know what I mean? You can't say Elvis is this, that, or the other. You just go, and, and this album as well. You know what I mean? People will say he's this, that, and the other. Not all. <laughs> um, no, I, I, of course, I've always given credit to my folks. My mother, I think the thing of record collecting is comes from my mother more than my father, because my father was given records because he was singing on the radio on the BBC. So it seemed cheap to him in the sense that that stacks of them arrived, you know, at work. He was given, learn these songs, and as improbable as it may sound, the Joe Loss Orchestra would do arrangements of whatever was in the hit parade. You know, in the late 50s, when it was songs by Edmund Hockeridge and Dennis Lotus and David... Oh, my God, Edmund Hockeridge. (laughs) Guy Mitchell or somebody or Johnny Ray, that was fine. But when you get into the 60s and it's, you know, Freddie and the Dreamers and the Four Tops and and just anything that... that, It it was all so different. It was a wild selection. On the other hand, Mama left school at 14 and got a job in Rushworth and Drapers as, a, as an assistant and proceeded to have to learn the difference between two different recordings of Beethoven's Fifth so you could say which one is the one you should recommend. Obviously, she didn't know that. She had to learn it, be trained as to listen, love jazz and dance music. So that's how my folks met. She went to oh. work in another shop and they, that's how they met because she was the gal who worked in... The shop, he knew a little bit about this music, much of which was pretty rare and hard to get. So that's the same as courting somebody with a mixtape, isn't it? In the in the in the eighties, so I'm sure some of, of the, the older people would remember. You know, you'd you'd give a mixtape to somebody. This is the music. This this is what represents me. The modern equivalent of that is the playlist. It's all comprehensible, and and having a few records that are are precious to you and only perhaps some songwriter that only you know about. I mean, I remember whispering to people, have you heard this guy? He's called Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) And it seems ridiculous you would say that now, but I had Bruce Springsteen's first record and I bought it in probe in 1972, maybe 71. And about five people knew that record existed. And, you know, and two and five years later or four years later, he was like the guy we now know. But there's everybody yeah. has a starting point somewhere. You know, I remember buying sort of independent singles on various people, just as somebody bought my first single on Stiff. And when that was like a one shop front outfit in, you know, Labrook Grove, like, you know. I know, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, was, the whole record company was run out of one shop front, like like most. <laughs> yeah. So was Stacks. It was an old cinema or something that converted into an office and a studio. It, when you actually go to those famous studios from music history, you're always shocked how tiny the places are. Motown, tiny. Mm-hmm. Like a, it's like a broom cupboard, you know, it's mm-hmm. tiny. Yeah. I have to ask you, because your mum worked for uh, Rushworth and Draper, because um, I bought my, my only guitar from there. Did you buy your first guitar from there? No, I didn't touch an instrument until I was... Because uh, I, I have a strange... Um, kind of connection. I was christened in Birkenhead, but I was born yeah. in London. So I spent all my, uh, most of my school holidays on Merseyside. Yeah. Um, obviously when I became a red in 62, um, I, I mean, the holidays were based around going to Anfield, or, you know, so, um, <laughs> so it, it was that aspect as well. So it wasn't just music. I mean, when you're a kid, you, you, you think you want to be an astronaut, you think you want to be a center forward. You think you might want to be one of the temptations, <laughs> you know, you know but a few of those things are really very lightly, you know. Um, but when I was about 13 or 14, I picked up the guitar and I had an old guitar, which had been bought on holiday when I was really little and I'd never even learned to tune it. And of course, the minute I tried to play anything on it that made sense to me, it, it was it really wasn't suited for that. It was a, it was nylon strung guitar for one thing. So I saved up. I used to work. Um, I know my fruit, you know, I know my veg because I was a Saturday boy, you know, I was a, <laughs> a green Saturday boy. Um, I saved <laughs> money from that job and, uh, got to be good at selling potatoes and, uh, save the money. <laughs> I would uh, put a down payment on a, on a decent kind of acoustic guitar, it seemed to me. I don't think it was a great instrument, but it was. It let me loose, and I'd pay it off. You know, I got to take it home after about the third week of paying up, and I paid off the rest of it over the next few weeks, and that was it. Wow, wow! Uh, let's talk about the new album, which is astounding. It is fantastic. The cover, um, describe it because it's brilliant. The cover is just something I saw in a, in like a dream. I mean, I do these daubs. Uh, I have done for the last few years for the backdrops in our concerts. I started on subverting our album covers by painting a little character, a martinet, as I would call him, the Barney Bubbles, who, who was the art director of our early albums from Miami's Truth through to imperial bedroom and punch the clock uh he did this wonderful painting for imperial bedroom so i had put this little character of his this little i think it was supposed to be me this kind of little tricorned hat character and i painted him into all of the of our record sleeves and changed the names of all our records um so that i there was just something to put behind the band because heaven knows i'm sure people would rather look at colored pictures on a screen than actually look at us um so and then it then it became a thing of actually drawing uh, these representations that lined up with Look Now, the last album. And I just kept going and I enjoy doing it. It's I'm, I have no thought that I'm any kind of artist, but it is the way I see it. 
And I can, you can't really describe a picture for somebody else to paint. So you have to work within your own limitations. And I, I, uh, I like these things and I will do them to the end of time. But surely art is what you make it. It's, you know. It's not art, it's just. It's what, you know, yeah. It's just a, it, it's, um, it's a cartoon of a clock face because that is that it's giving the, uh, giving the time a face. It's giving, yeah. you know, it, in a whimsical way, it's giving time a personality because it interferes with you when you're not, you know, when you want something to happen, when you want somebody to arrive, time moves slowly. So that is really what, what that song, Hey Clockface, is about. It's not a big philosophical, drastic idea. It's just, uh, no. it's just something that I, I, I came up with. And well, it's I tried interesting. To the last time I, I spoke to you, I, I, I'm a, here we go, notebooks. Um, uh -huh. So I keep all of these notebooks and I buy these pens. And the last time I bought a new notebook and a pen was with you. And I started doodling. And every night doing my show from home, I doodle. So do you do things like that? at the moment? Yeah, when my mother was ill a couple of years ago, I sat in Narrow Park oh. Hospital for about five weeks. Yeah. Sat by her bedside for like three or four hours a day, as long as they'd let me stay there, that I was limited. Oh. And most of the time she wasn't really communicating. She was pretty out for the count at that time. And I found that uh, there were enough noise going on that yeah. I couldn't really concentrate on reading and I didn't find any music particularly consoling, but if I just drew, I, I, I could do these bizarre illustrations and I would just, I, mm. I could do that for hours. Uh, and it was just, uh, it was comforting in some way. So it became, it didn't have to represent that moment. I wasn't drawing those circumstances or thinking about it. In fact, quite the opposite because I was just there to keep watch. Until um, until one afternoon when the woman in the opposite bed who had had some sort of affliction and that it obviously wasn't her tongue and she started yelling at her family, oh. don't you let him come up here, he's not getting any more, he's not getting any of my money. And this woman's oh. mother looked up from her pillow and she looked like this just over at the woman and I went, uh-oh, you're still with us. Because, you know, yeah. that, that... And from then on, I had hope. And so, you know, uh, I went back out on the road at the back end of 2018. I'd already had a pause in the, uh, in the year when I'd got sick. And, you know, uh, well, I hadn't got sick. I'd had this thing uh, identified. Some reported that I was, I was at death's door. But you know, everything that's printed in the sun is a lie. And they don't yeah. actually, whether you or I or anybody watching lives or dies. So they just like print things that, that, that sell newspapers. And actually it was just fine. I was extremely lucky I got the other side of this thing. But it was yeah. a challenging 2018. And, and uh, making a record like Look Now was, was very, um, I was very grateful for the, for the, for the, focus that we had on that album with me and the band with the imposters and Sebastian Cruz. Yeah. Creating the visual complement for that was a way of keeping myself 
from moon to uh, anxious and because there are things that are happening when you're dealing with older parents uh, that, mm. that you have no control over you have to accept and you have to just be present and grateful mm. for the time one has and now as I think you know mm. my mother was actually at the old Locarno at the Olympia in March on the opening night of our tour so this story which sounded, sounded started to sound a little morbid um, has a for now a happy ending uh, you know she showed great resilience and very oh, grateful doctors and nurses there but most especially help her at home she lives at home and uh, right now like so many people i'm not able to travel to visit her and you i'm sure people watching this will know how difficult that is if you even if you're in the same town as your family you can't perhaps go visit them that that is that is a difficult thing so it's important not to become self thinking about that you have to put your energies into creating something or working on something mm. that lifts you out of any of the more negative mm. thoughts. And that something was recognizing the work I'd done back in February. It was three days, two days, three, three day session in Helsinki, two day session in Paris. I came home, was grateful to be with my family here, my, my, my wife and my two young sons. Yeah. And after a deep breath, you know, and a couple of weeks of quarantine, started listening to music and found that there was something quite different in this. And my pal, Michael Lenhart, had sent me two pieces of music, which I completed as New Coat of Pain and Radio is Everything. And I had then a record that wasn't like anything else I'd, I'd done. It wasn't, it wasn't a, wasn't set out to be very, uh, an illustration of how diverse I could be or how many genres I could but it is. No, but I don't, I don't, I don't speak French. You know, I don't think of the <laughs> uh, when, I'm, when I'm doing things, I don't think of borderlines. I, I think of what's in the song. What are the tools? What are the skills I have? What, who are the people in the room? What are they giving? Listen to how well they're playing on these songs in Paris. Some of these people I've never even met. So to have them play in response to your songs is tremendous good fortune. And I could only be grateful for how open-hearted they were in creating songs like The Whirlwind and Byline and, and all these things that we Just two days, and I do. It was an incredible, joyful feeling, even though the song itself is quite somber. Tremendous, but it is the most amazing album, it really, really is. And it's not the only time I've ever had that experience, of course. I've, I mean, when the attractions and I were making records, we could recognize that something was happening, we weren't blind to that. When I was working with the, the Brodsky Quartet making the Juliet Letters, it, 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 it relied on me letting go of all the things I thought I knew. There was no backbeat, there was no there was not nothing giving me the you know the certainty of where the song I, we knew what we'd written but to make it happen when i worked in the studio in 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 the mid 80s with the musicians that t-bone burnett put around me on king of america that was another yeah. sort of thing just yeah. happening in the room somebody would enter play a part that would spur you on to sing a little deeper or dig a little deeper into the song and and so it goes on so as you know some records are a process of constructing and adding and some are 
snapshot of a moment in time. Uh, uh, you took, mentioned Blue Note. Those records were all, none of those were overdubbed. They were all just great. Turn on the tape recorder, those musicians doing that for three, four, seven minutes. And it's also what you did, though, isn't it? That spontaneity came to you again. Well, it's, I didn't know that what, what it, why it was happening. I, I, I just knew that I'd had this dream to go to Paris and, and just walk in and just say, here I am, guys, and here's some songs. Let's see what we make of this. And I have to credit Steve Naive for sort of making the right calls, the combination of people. You know, Juke, the drummer, is somebody I knew, the reed player I had worked with, with Steve. The other two guys, nobody knew. They were, came highly recommended. But I think when the cellist said, you know what, if you want to... If you want to kick them on I can stomp my feet. I went, I don't usually hear the cellist in the symphony. <laughs> I can I can play the cello and I can stamp the foot at the same time. I thought, well, okay, we've got the right guys <laughs> in with the right solutions, making the music be as good as it can be, you know. So um I, I and I didn't really think about what it was. I just we were just singing for those three or four minutes, and then I, I liked the sound. I liked what people played, and let other people let other people worry about what they call it. I don't, you know, as long as somebody is listening, I don't know what definitions there are. Yeah. But it strikes me you're not concerned about being centre stage necessarily. Oh yes, I am. I mean, after all, my songs, for the most part, I mean, Michael <laughs> did those two tracks and gave them to me as a playground for me to try out ideas lyrically. And so we made radios, everything, Bill Frizzell and Nels Klein playing on that. And then uh, he, he sent me the other piece, which became Newspaper Pain. Likewise, oh, I love Steve, that. he wrote the music of The Last Confession of Vivian Whip, and I just wrote the words. Mm. But I, obviously, I've collapsed in different proportions. When I worked with Bert Backrack, people assumed that I was his lyricist. But in fact, I, I wrote a lot of work for music, not painted from memory. The, it didn't really matter after a while who began the writing of the song. What mattered was what it sounded like when we'd finished writing it. And if yeah. he wrote two thirds of it and I wrote a third, or I wrote three quarters of it and he added just one part, we, we've never really broken it down and given you a little graph to explain who wrote what, because that's not important. When you listen to the song, you just hear it all as one one piece. And uh, I, I know where the joins are sort of, but, I, but I, over time it becomes irrelevant. But when you take yourself away from Vancouver and you go to Helsinki and you get on the ferry boat and you go to this tiny island, where you think nobody knows you, I'm sure they do. And then you go to Paris, and then you go to London. Are there three different aspects to the sound? Yeah. I was going to record, you know, fairy. I don't know what made me pick that studio. It just appealed to me. Of, of the countries um, in, in that region, I obviously made an album of shows in Norway. I wrote an opera, or which I never finished, about Hans Christian Andersen, which I was debuted at the Royal Danish Opera House. 
you know, if in if you're in that part of the world, Finland's the one country I'd only played in four times in 40 years, only twice in Helsinki. So I I was right in saying I wasn't being disrespectful, but I wasn't as well known, and I wanted it that way. I wanted to go somewhere where I could just. I didn't know any musicians to call on, and I really liked the look of the studio, and I was rewarded for that. Etu, the engineer, was really fluent and had no preconceived ideas and just ran with everything. And we had a lot of fun just make the mischief of making the record came back. You know, rock and roll can become very orthodox and a bit. I think a lot of rock music I hear sounds terribly predictable and you kind of you hear the first eight bars, you know what the last eight bars are going to be. <laughs> this really didn't know where it was. You know, this is a no flag. It starts with this bass drum and this funny sort of ethereal sound on a theremin and then it's a guitar riff and, and then the percussion isn't typical drums. It's all a mixture of things. I just wanted that and have be in a play playground, a play, a play box of sounds. And just had that, and each song was a slightly different mood. Uh, no flag was one. Etty O'Hara was the comedy song of the record, and then we're all cowards now. A much grave and melancholy thing, but it was, it was, you know, it felt like I was doing something worthwhile. And then I had the huge fortune to go to Paris and be in the room with these musicians who could play with great understanding of what I'd written, and he's playing as ever. Marvelous, but not typical of Steve Naive. When people say, "Oh, yeah, he's that guy. He can play really, really dazzling." If you listen, he isn't playing very many notes. He's playing the right notes, but he's not doing. You know, you'll have to wait for the next record or the one after that to hear him doing the more typical Steve Naive thing. That when people see him live, they kind of go, "Oh my God, he's got so many ideas coming out of his head." And that's what's been a pleasure to work with in these forty odd years. You know. You mentioned then uh, Hetty, and there's also Vivian. Two names that I had to Google to see if they were real characters awesome. that you based songs on. No. Hetty O'Hara, I obviously wanted uh, to remind people of of names. Like, I wanted it to be like that. So you went, it's, oh, Hetty O'Hara, I remember reading about her. But no, she sounds know. like some, you know, uh, wicked somebody that was hung at some point. Hanged, maybe. The, the, the gossip columnists of, of the 30s and 40s and early 50s tended to have those alliterative names, so I just picked one that sounded like you'd heard it before. Vivian Whip, some people said, oh, that that's about this woman. It's about a man, that song. It's uh, Vivian is a man. Um, uh, okay. It's whatever you imagine, of course. The other good thing about songs is you can imagine the narrative out of the words. I, I don't always spell it out and the moral of the story is I, I that type of writing doesn't appeal to me that much so no. I just try to leave there to be some space for the listener's imagination and when you've got music like Stephen Muriel's tune for Vivian Whip it you know it starts out in a very delicate way it's a very romantic bridge and that mm. wouldn't be thing I would think I would write necessarily the, the romantic nature of the music and the na -da -da -do 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 -da 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 -do that part I really love singing and it seemed to take me somewhere in the story that I could, wouldn't have got on my own so that's that's all you're looking to do where you took me was with um I can't say her name and clock face right I'm a tap dancer and you and I, <laughs> I was champion tap dance, um, and I really, really want to tap dance to those ragtime kind of sounds that are going on there. 
Well, you, of course you could. And I mean, that is the point. Those, both those songs borrow the clothes of uh, music from another time. Yeah, and they were just a joy to play because nobody had a snobbish idea about what, what that music was. We weren't being... <laughs> it's like lots of people write with a rock and roll rhythm or they write with a country ballad sort of form or an R&B groove. Why can't you just visit that for a little while? It doesn't have to be better than any other time. It's just a story. And uh, I can't say a name is a sweet song about not being able to speak your heart. There's a couple of songs about people not being able to speak their heart. I suppose Vivian Whip is a little bit like that too. But I loved the end of the record where we kick into tempo and me and um, I get to do some effing. <laughs> you don't know what that is, do you? Like, what I'm doing on the end of that record is called something ukulele IQ used to do, one of my favorite singers from the 1920s, the guy Cliff Edwards, who later sang You Wish Upon a Star, Pinocchio. But in his company, only by ukulele. Of course, he didn't have anybody to play the solos, and all of those songs are usually fairly short in form. So when it came to the solo, he'd just he'd do what he referred to as effing, which was <laughs> it's, so, it's so it's so sort of like a it has an innocent thing to it that like what are you going to do i don't have another instrument but i can make this sound and and a lot of early recording was based on that just make a silly sound and Ooh. don't worry about who's looking at you while you do it just have a bit of fun and just let yourself go there's that song so you know, let your feet hit the timber, let yourself go. And a lot of it, a lot of making music's very sort of like, it's lost all the joy of just, you know, the early recordings on 78 records, it, it, they turned on the machine and whatever happened in those, <coughs> whether it was the, what instrument was played, the very, very early records were sung by the same singers because they discovered those singers were the ones whose voices would register on, mm. When they were acoustically, if you had a deep voice like this, it couldn't be heard. It, 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 that recording system couldn't capture that. But uh, people that had, that's why oh, they sort of sort of thing like this. And, you know, that, yeah. Like that, because it, that's, that, that would register, that would move the needle. And uh, mm. something to that, I think. And, and, and when you think about rock and roll records where somebody just shrieks, I'm sure somebody in the control room has gone, oh my goodness, it's gone into the red. Well, that's what we love, isn't it? Listen to mm. like R&B records where the vocals given such such attack, such a feeling that it's all gone to the edge of distortion. And that's, that, that is a lot of the excitement of, re of recording is that funny sound, whether it's a fuzz tone guitar, a scat voice, uh, whatever, just let it go, you know, stop worrying so much. It's, it takes me back to what you said before, there are no rules. Well, there are rules. You can be in and out of tune, but the, even that's debatable. Yeah. yeah. Try listening to Frank Sinatra. Try listening to Billie Holiday. They both sing really out of tune if you were to put a mm. tuning for Why would you do that? Because there's a reason why they're singing like that. They're hearing it that way. Some people who play the horn play sharp, some play flat. That's the way they're hearing it. They're, hear, they're hearing nuances that in other forms of music around the world, there are, there are different tones. It's, 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 like that's why we are attracted to things that from other cultures, 
like why there was a vote for Indian music because of the, the microtones, you know, there's something in us that says it's not all this color or that color, it's all the shades in between the same with, like why, the, why is the bent note emotional? It just is. Yeah. Well, all we know are the, you know, stuff, you know, we're taught, well, I wasn't even taught music at school, all we did was Panis Angelicus, um, but um, we're told, you know, there are so many notes, but actually there are more. If you explore the world, how many notes are there? A lot more, and that's why there are people, there are theorists, eccentrics, as they might have been seen to be. I once got to record a version of Weird Nightmare by Charles Mingus for a record by my friend Hal Wilmer, who passed earlier this year. And there were just a group of incredible jazz musicians, but they were all given these Harry Parch instruments. Harry Parch was mm. a theorist. He wrote mm. off, he wrote big, complicated pieces of music, but he also invented his own instruments. Mm. And in a way, he gave his instruments marvelous names that sounded like members of the magic band. You know, the instruments sounded like the, the names that Captain Beefheart gave to his players, the mm. cloud chamber bowls, the harmonic cannon, the, the wow. artificial catharta, all these fantastic instruments. And if you walked up to the what looked like a harmonium, he'd shortened the reeds so that it was impossible to play Western music on it. It played all the intermediate microtones mm. between the arrangement. So of course, when you when you play a composition that's written with reference to Western scales, you get all these other overtones and colors. Now it wouldn't work for every type of song, but it was a really great experience, very, very kind of illuminating, just to have to stand in the booth and try and stay in one key while all these sounds swirl around your head. Um, and the musicians were all like having great fun at, at not you know, and not um, having a certainty. All these players who can play up and down the scale, any kind of music, people like Bill Fazell, like Henry Threadgill, Art Barron, Don Elias, really incredible musicians, Mark Rebo, Michael Blair, Greg Cohen, that was the band. And it was, it was something that I'll always remember and thankful to Hal. Hal was a, he was an incredible friend, incredible record producer. He would create these evenings where he would celebrate music. People called them tribute records, but there was so much more because he would have people who you would never imagine this music and they would, they would find something in it original. He did a record of you know, Rota's music. He did a record of music from the Disney films. He, he did a record of Kurt Weill. And he would do evenings and some of them were, some of them happened in London. There was one based on the Harry Smith archive. It had Nick Cave in it. That same show went to New York and other people played in it in New York. I played in the, the Los Angeles show and the, and the cast was just David Thomas from Peribu, Steve Earle, Philip Wow, Eric Mingus, Don Byron, uh, oh, just on and on, Eliza Carthy. Right there, just say the names. You hear how oh. much... Hudson, the folksman, that's the that's the 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 sort of folk version of spinal tap. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they, it, it was not making these boxes where the music lives in and, and that freedom that uh, Hal had in celebrating this man who had gathered together 78 records in the 50s that told a story about America and that wasn't the sort of book learned uh, 
college version. It was the raw artistic idea. It was related to the great, to the to the writers in the fifties and the and the filmmakers in the fifties in the United States, who weren't actually signed up to the to the nice neat and tidy version of music and art and culture and politics even it, and it was a real adventure to go on those shows you know when it came up every so often and i tried to keep things that i learned from working with how even in putting this record together i thought well, there's really no reason why i can't have no flag and revolution 49 exactly yeah yeah he would, he would have definitely done that and we always yeah. planned work on a record and I, you know I mean I remember the last time I went to the studio and he was playing me the album which I think has just come out now of versions of Mark Boland's songs mm -hmm. and, I, and I had actually having been somebody who had to go and play in a pub in Witness and had people request <laughs> it I always had to it's like it had to be if you were playing on a Friday night and witness with me and my friend Alan, we'd get T Rex played, and I didn't want to know about that music. But <laughs> I can hear, and when all these lovely versions of how conceived of art songs, I can hear that it was just my teenage kind of snobbery, really. And <laughs> in his little room, and it's full of like ventriloquists. And there's a record leaning up against the board, and it's Albert Finney's record that he made for me. Now, I bet you have that one, don't you, Janice? I you don't. don't. <laughs> I recommend it. But, you know, somebody's got to have that record. The point is, somebody somewhere has got that record in their hand. They found it in a secondhand bin, they found it in an independent shop, they found it in a secondhand store, and they're saying, this is some kind of magic, and maybe somewhere in it, there is. Elvis, I'm going to have to stop you. So, wonders of technology, I've got loads of questions for you uh, from people who've been WhatsApping. I was looking at some of them myself here, and there's some very, very fine questions. Thank you all for those. Let's get through, see how many we can get through. So, yes. from Ayako uh, Sasamoto, who says, who is or what is Zula in I Do? Oh yeah, that's a good question. If you uh, if you get the record, if you get the physical record on vinyl at your local independent store, and vinyl is important. Yes, you will be able to read the credits, and I would say that when you read those dedications, you the answer to that question is found there. I'm not saying anything more. Okay. Uh, Kerry McKenzie says, uh, loving this Elvis, if he could have attended any recording session um, or, of any artist in your life, who would it have been? I don't know. What, what moment would that be? Would it be Frank Sinatra saying, I've got you under my skin? Would it be, <laughs> you know, uh, you could go on forever? I, I don't know. I've, I've, I haven't very often attended other people's recording sessions, to be honest. No. Once in a while, I, I, I was in, I went to look at Wessex Studios with View to producing the specials record and using it. And when no I got, way. We didn't use, and we ended up recording it under a, a laundrette in the Fulham Palace Road. But 
Um, I, that was one time I walked in where a band I really loved was working, and I, I and that was the Clash, and they were making uh, London Calling. Well, the day that I studio, so I was only there for half an hour. I sat with Joe for a while while Mick was doing a guitar overdub. But it was a glimpse, and it was like, oh, they do it really differently. That sounds really different than I would use. I I, I wouldn't even say that sound will work, but then when I heard the record, it sounded great. So there you go, it's good. All right, Martin Braley says, I've been lucky enough to see you play in some amazing places. Is that somewhere you've always wanted to play, but you've not been able to? Uh, I haven't played so very often in South America. Oh, I played once with the, with the uh, Charles Mengus Orchestra at a jazz festival in Brazil. And uh, we went back a couple of years later with the imposters and we played three cities. We played a, on a double bill with Dr. John. Uh, wow. And then we played uh, one show in Buenos Aires. And of course, you know, I think you know now that there is a, a, a new version of this year's model coming out next year, mm. uh, which is very unusual and sounds sort of crazy when you say it, but it's a remix of the original um, instrumental parts with a cast of 15 Latin singers from across 12 Spanish speaking countries who did such an incredible job in adapting my lyrics into Spanish. And you yeah. can imagine given that model is about glamour and how we look at each other, something really interesting to me as the writer of the songs are hearing a young woman sing some of those songs in Spanish and they're, it's an extraordinary cast of musicians, but yet that we we uh, we previewed one of the songs uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there's a whole album of it. And I I can imagine people going, well, I don't know, why would I want that? Well, you know what? Unless you speak Spanish, it might not be for you, but maybe those people in Spain will be intrigued to hear it, or maybe you'll be intrigued to hear it because it it's really done at the highest level. I could not say enough for again my co-producer Sebastian Cris, who's from Argentina made the connections and I got to talk to these artists across a, across two or three generations of musicians and I feel like I've got a whole load of new friends. Gracias. Uh, Christopher Benson, if you're going to, you know, the desert island, uh, which guitar would you take? Probably a Harmony Sovereign, the one I wrote my first album on. I've got one again, a Harmony Sovereign Deluxe. Where did you buy that from? Where did I buy it? I bought mm. that car. I bought that one in, in Potter's Music Store in Richmond. All oh, right. Yeah. Uh, right. Will Timms, who would you most like to have collaborated with among artists who are no longer with us? I've never really thought about that at all. I mean, no, I think it's a weird one, isn't it? Truthful, I, I could never imagine any of the collaborations that I have enjoyed. I mean, sometimes there'll only be one song or one night that you sang with somebody. I mean, I've been on stage with such an, uh, an unusual array of people. And then I got to do these couple of very sustained collaborations with people who, truthfully, it was beyond my wildest dreams to say that I would write with Paul McCartney or Burt Bacharach or Alan Toussaint. I have done them all. In terms of, you know, uh, what about all the other people that I couldn't, uh, um, it's just never come up. Yeah. No. Um, thanks for the music. Trying to learn guitar, sixty-two. Finding it very hard. Is the one song that you learnt when you started out 
uh, that will stop me from giving up? Well, I'm actually going to be issuing an audio pamphlet soon about on this matter. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, and uh, I do think there is a key, and I think it's uh, the secrets of this, and they're not tremendous secrets, most people would, would know, but I think part of it is music instruction books are often written by people who read music, and therefore they, they are written in the key of C, which is the very logical key to begin playing a piano because it presents the first scale is all on the white keys. But of course, if you pick up the guitar and you play the chord of C, which is a very easy one to play, the next chord you are most likely to need to play is the chord of F, which is, is really called F because you go <laughs> I was just trying to do F then remembering it. <laughs> to you know whatever age you are whether you're a kid or whether you're somebody struggling with rheumatism it is <laughs> and so many people hurl the guitar aside and in my theory it's why the world is full of murderous dictators and sadistic people with tiny little mirrors uh, that look at your teeth and all these things which seem like a, a necessary occupations but not ones <clears throat> you would yourself into instead of guitar players. So I'll explain my method in time. Hold on. I hope so. I hope so. Because when I bought my, is it Netto or Eco? I can't remember, um, guitar. And the, the thing you got with it was there is a house, uh, no, the rising House of the Rising Sun, or she'd be coming around the mountain. And they weren't inspiring at all. To live, wouldn't they, really? Yeah. <laughs> it was Lola that made me want to um, learn to play uh, the guitar, but lots of um, stuff coming out. I've just got to redo the old WhatsApp. Uh, here we go. Um, oh, yeah. So um, somebody's saying Helsinki. Mm -hmm. um, did that inspire you in any, any way, shape, or form? The, the, the place was just welcoming. The people were like those. I didn't truthfully have a lot of time to wander around. I think I went to a couple of really, went to a really great exhibition one day on my way, but I literally just got up, went to the ferry, got on the ferry to the studio, worked for eight hours, got on the ferry, went home, had supper, you know, answered some letters and went to bed and did it again. It was three days. <laughs> I was a tourist, but I was a working person. Yeah. That was from John, by the way. Have you missed playing with other musicians during the lockdown? I miss very much being in the room with them, although I have succeeded. Steve and I have managed to find some, as, he, as only he would, some way to temporarily cheat the laws of physics. And I would connect with him over FaceTime and he would project <clears throat> that image onto his Facebook page and we got to play a little bit. But that requires me to begin the song. I can't listen to him play with me because the delay will throw us out of time. So we did have a bit of fun in the spring and early summer <clears throat> playing well, was... um, on, on occasion. Uh, but, yeah. um, you know, there are lots of ways you can play. You don't necessarily have to see one another to play. You can play together and you can no. create. But that was from Todd, by the way. And you do have an amazing relationship with Steve. It's, I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, what else do we have? Ask Elvis about, can, can we ask you about Byline? What's it about, says Martin Loder. Your voice is great on it, by the way, he says. 
yeah byline is uh, a song about somebody who's reflecting on the love letter they never sent but maybe they, quite often you you your life would have been different if you'd just spoken your heart if you had sent that letter that might have changed the course, it's just about that moment. It's a simple song, really. It's a simple idea. And did that come from the heart? All the songs come from the heart, Janice. You know that. <laughs> Has Elvis listened uh, back to Riot of the Regent from the Armed Forces box set? And how does he feel it hearing now his younger self beating the audience? This is from uh, Simon Kerr Edwards. Well, of course, you're talking about the Armed Forces box set. There you go. There's the backdrop. Uh, that's pretty much uh, the way it, way it felt then, uh, for those who can see that. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, those those few songs that we released from, from the region are about as much, <coughs> pardon me, about as coherent as it got. I mean, the the sense of this record is to really make the original album uh, sound as good as it could possibly. The, the the mastering of the original album Armed Forces is as good. It collects together the thing, some things that you've seen before. And these two little souvenir 10 inches are thrown into the pile. Uh, if you listen to the entire concert, uh, I, I think you'd agree four tracks is enough from the region. It's a, it's a snapshot of us going off the rails and that and that's the truth. Uh, you could go on forever. We're not in the dicks picks business here. I don't care about every last note that we played being issued. That's never going to happen. This is the last word on armed forces. There won't be any more after this. Yeah. And and really, I, I know that people have made note of the fact there's no CD edition of this. That wasn't my decision. I, uh, for myself, think the CD not a very good format, but I understand a lot of people have that. But uh, the reality is all the music is readily available uh, through streaming and uh, through uh, download. And for now, the vinyl edition is, a, is, a, is just that. It's a limited edition item. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the one that includes all of the uh, annotation, uh, words of line, uh, the notebooks that Todd Alcott did to encase... Uh, fa photographic facsimiles of my notebooks. If you want to read all the bad rhymes that I didn't put in Oliver's Army, uh, this is the book for you. Uh, I, I could not find a rhyme for Bolton. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm good to think about that. Uh, Eugene Unger, what song uh, makes the hairs on the back of your next stand on end? And this is the really difficult part of this question. Five top albums that people should listen to. Five top albums by anybody? I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't possibly. I would say five. <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> well, five minutes later, I would say five different ones. I mean, yeah, exactly. There's records out there. You should, you know, take a scan of those. You might find something you like. But what makes your, you know, if you put a tune on and it makes you go all tingly, what is it usually wants to know? Well, there isn't one above all, is what I'm saying. I mean, it could mm. be a different thing. I mean, could be, you know, I, I, I really can't say. I really can't say. There's all sorts I think it's of very hard. I mean, we like different things. You know, as you say, five minutes later, you go, oh, God, I've forgotten that. 
you know, or whatever. You discover things all of the time. Some a collection of those old records that we were talking about where people just opened their head and something came out. Sometimes you want to hear Dusty in Memphis, which is something where Here's a, somebody who'd made a lot of great records, but suddenly was served by better rhythm players. Sometimes you want to hear you know, a symphony. Sometimes you want to hear a single fiddle. I can't, I can't say one is better than the other. They're all occasions. Do you and Diana have to go into separate rooms to listen to music or do you listen to things together? Well, there are times in the day that all of us in our house are listening to music together. Uh, we tend to listen to music at supper time. And, uh, you know, that can be a choice, one one or other. Anybody in our house could choose that, you know. Uh, but it was a, a great summer in another sense that, uh, that Diana was making a record in one part of the house while I was out on the back porch making, <laughs> you know, finishing Clockface and, and recording a lot of other music that you haven't heard yet. Uh, so there's there's a lot of work going on in our house. Not all of it is visible right now. Anthony Austin says, do you feel you've changed the way you write your lyrics as you've changed as a singer? Both things are true. I mean, if you didn't change over a period of time, it's one of the big mysteries to me why everybody thinks you should remain the same and true to one, the one true. You can't. Yeah. No, you, everything about it, the air, the surprise... I mean, there, there. You do know there are some records where the musicians treat the studio like it's H.G. Wells' time machine, and they're, okay, let's set the controls to 1965, and if we get that amplifier and that guitar, we can make this sound exactly like a recording uh, cut with Rick Hall, and you know, and that's never really going to happen because you're different people in a different time, and I, I would never, I'd be the last person. To, to dispute the, 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 the great help that the cues of music from the past can give you for the future. But to my mind, you have to accept your, this is happening in the moment you're in. Yeah, there are some rooms that are less, they are less productive because they, they're sort of clinical and there's a certain type of equipment that robs the music of warmth. But you can overstate the use of that um, time travel aspect. Uh, if you don't write the song and you've got nothing in your heart, it doesn't actually matter what, what you set the dials to on the control to travel, time travel, you know. You have to open up to it. <laughs> 